Welcome back to another episode of Brown Coats Black Magic. Apparently a very Scottish episode of Brown Coats Black Magic. Which is, makes no sense because this is not at all about Europe. It's about Asia. Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> This whole Scottish thing has thrown me off because Orlando and I are talking this week about Asian movies, specifically Chinese movies that we have watched in the last few months on Netflix. Yeah. And, you know, Scotland, because that makes a lot of sense. But, dear listener... But we're really not talking about Scotland at all. We're really not at all, at all. I think what it is, I was talking about Outlander today with a friend, and it just kind of stuck in my mind. But more importantly, we are talking about Chinese films, wuxia films, and, you know, the big apparent ones might be, like, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or um, Hero, which is really awesome back in the day. But we're going to be talking about a few that are lesser known, perhaps, um, and some that actually really freaking enjoy, and some that just make us scratch our heads. I think they all fall under that category, and just some are more enjoyable in the head-scratching than others are. That's true. It's probably a ratio, a sliding scale. Definitely. But speaking of scales, let's dive right in into the first one, which is The Sorcerer and the White Snake. This movie is just weird. And it's so strange. I don't even... It, it's. I only made it, like, maybe 20 minutes into this movie before I was like, this is too much. I can't handle it. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed it just because the visuals are really awesome. And I think that can be said for all of these films. All these films really take the visuals to a new level and i think that's something to be said and i've said before about just having a different kind of cultural imagination you know there are things i think that a chinese artist or an asian artist might not necessarily uh envision the way that a western based or raised artist might and i just feel like all of it is steeped in history right and in like eras long ago and effectively what we would call like you know medieval times it's, but it's Chinese medieval. Medieval times. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. It's effectively, you know, like their, their history and they live it in a way that in the West we're kind of reared on King Arthur and stuff like that, you know? So I just feel like they have a cool basis that's so different and foreign that I really like. I find that watching movies like this, you have to get yourself into a completely different headspace, but it's, it's kind of the best part about them is forcing yourself to think about things very differently because in all of these movies, like social structures and the hierarchy between the characters makes a huge difference. And it, it really is integral to the plot of each of these movies, actually. Right. And I, I don't know about you, Pooja, but I always find myself struggling to realize where the pecking order is. I'm like, wait, isn't that? Oh, who's in charge? OK, that's Emperor. So they're probably in charge. <laughs> I actually find it not that difficult. Like, I feel like all the movies that we watched that we're going to talk about in this segment anyway we're pretty good about explaining like at the beginning like who like who's in charge of whom yeah i guess there's one movie in particular which i think we'll talk about which kind of danced around a lot so that i think may have contributed a lot to my confusion and also another now i think about it but we'll get into that but the one we are talking about is the sorcerer and the white snake and you know i'm just gonna be honest the primary focus for me doing this was that there are like lesbian nagas (laughs) <laughs> yeah, definitely. This movie starts off with these 
two snake ladies, <laughs> these two Naga ladies who I know y'all are already in who Guys seem are... to be who seem to be in love with each other, and that's all awesome and totally down with that. I just didn't understand what the hell was going on. I really and didn't. I'm gonna be honest. I didn't either, but it kind of didn't matter because lesbian snake ladies. So, and truthfully, I, it was blurred as to like whether they were actually lovers or sisters or just like close. And that's they could have just cool. they could have just been friends, <laughs> right? But who knows? We but don't know. A, but like, was... I choose to believe that they were they were lesbian lovers because I think that would be really cool. Yeah, and we definitely think... don't see enough of that in movies in general. No, not enough Chinese lesbian snake ladies. Not enough <laughs> lesbians in general at oh, all, boy. let alone Chinese lesbian nagas. So yeah, I mean, the Sorcerer and the White Snake. It it's visually arresting and it's just. It's really cool, but I, I can't really recommend it as much as others in this genre that we are going to talk about. Um, it was just like I kind of didn't care as much. And once well, the charm of. I mean, seeing as I only watched the first 20 minutes and all I know about it is lesbian nagas, what's the movie about exactly? Again, I'm going to be honest. I kind of didn't really know. I watched the movie and I'm like, no more lesbian nagas. But yeah, it turns into like, you know, the obligatory love story. And it, it's just a little too dizzying with like the crazy backstories of like this sorcerer who did this evil deed and trying to rectify it. And it just got is Jet, messy. It, like, I know Jet Li is in this movie. Is yeah. he played the sorcerer? Or, or... Yes. Oh, okay. So yeah, they kind of fall in love and it gets, it just gets weird. I'm, I can't really say that it's, um, like a good movie, but it certainly is pretty and strange. And I'm okay with that. But I think the ratios of pretty and strange were a lot higher than I like as compared to plot stuff. Yeah. So, see, I would appear that the plot was lacking in this yeah, movie. Yeah. I mean, just what, I mean, eye popping, but at the same time, like mind boggling and not in a good way. Or mind numbing. I, I wasn't numb. I just was just like, what? Literally, the characters' names are the, the Naga ladies are White Snake and Green Snake. Yeah, I guess that would explain why one of them was white and one of them was green. <laughs> there you go. That so, that is um, the thing that happened at the very but, beginning no, of the movie. I, let's. I'll be honest with you, listener. This was maybe not necessarily our least, yeah, probably our least favorite of the movies that we we saw. Um, you saw a movie that I didn't see. Why don't you talk to me about that one? Oh, the movie Isa was called Painted Skin: The Resurrection. Okay. And unlike Orlando, I don't remember any of the names for any of the people in any of these movies. Like, I'm going to be really upfront with that. So even more than normal, I don't remember anybody's names. Um, what, you don't, you don't speak Mandarin? What's wrong with you? Well, you know, I mean, I guess if I was really on the ball, I would have looked up all the names and done the little pronunciation thing and, like, had them all in my notes. But I'm not. I am so much more interested in the fact that... The plot of this movie was ridiculous. And apparently yeah. Painted Skin the Resurrection was a sequel to a movie that came out maybe six or so years before it, um, which I guess was just called Painted Skin. However, okay. that movie Makes is sense. not on Netflix, so I did not watch it. Damn it, Netflix. But you don't have to have seen the first one to watch the second one and, and follow it at all. Right. It's just that apparently... Um, so this Painted Skin the Resurrection is about a fox spirit... Cool. who has been encased in ice for, okay. like, the past 80 years. And that happened, apparently, in the first movie. She becomes encased in ice. So, for breaking demon world rules or something. 
But either way, a bird demon comes and like helps her out of the ice. But she has to find a man to give her his heart in order for to make her human. That's well, the idea. Duh. That's like, what every woman needs to do. Wow. <laughs> you went there. And a man would have to find a heart to become human. <laughs> But in any case, so she goes around and she, like, basically, like, seduces these guys to try to, like, get them to fall in love with her and give them her heart. And then she rips their hearts out of their chest. And it turns out all of them, like, although they've proffered to love her eternally and absolutely they'll give you, they'll, I'll give you my body. heart. Yeah, they're just after her body. And so none of their hearts are good enough. Mm. She meets up with this, like, masked person and it turns out that the masked person is a princess who, when she was a child, was attacked by a bear and became disfigured. She has, like, a series of scars across half her face. And she is in love with, like, the head of her guard. Okay. And the head of her guard is in love with her. Right. Except because of all the things. The rules, they cannot go near each other. The scars, the social differences, whatever, whatever. I love it. So you're going to find, listener, that these Chinese movies have all these rules. Like, she said, like, oh, there's, she meets this masked person. So I'm like, the royalty in hiding. <laughs> of course. Of course it's the royalty it's so in hiding. Cool. And that is something that does royalty. not... That does not change from, like, European (laughs) medieval times to, you know, Asian medieval times. But in any case, like, so the fox spirit and the scarred princess, you know, like, they're together. And then, like, the fox spirit enchants the head of the guard. Mm -hmm. Like, she casts a spell on him and, and kind of manipulates the whole situation so that eventually they switch places. And that's when things get really cray. Oh, that's when things get really I know, right? So they switch places, and the princess is supposed to be married to this prince from a neighboring country. And the and she obviously doesn't want to. So she switched places, like, permanently. They had, they had originally switched places temporarily, but she switched places permanently, gives the fox spirit her heart. And the fox spirit goes off to marry the prince from the neighboring country. Turns out, prince from the neighboring country is one of the guys that she, when she was a demon, ripped his heart out. And they are going to use her heart to bring him back to life. The neighboring country's plot is this? Yes, that is the neighboring country's plot. And the now, fox spirit there, can't do anything be about some it because now she's human. Vizier behind the scene who's like, it's like, yes, my lord, we're going to get this heart for you. Of There's course there that, is. That but, but, like, that's the thing is that guy, like, isn't really part of the movie. It's this okay. weird left turn that this whole thing takes. So then on the other side, you have the princess who is now a demon. And has to consume men's souls and hearts to survive. But if she does, she'll be a demon forever. Okay. And you have the head of the guard who is in love with this woman, this princess, and is desperately, like, trying to save everyone. And it ends up, like, it's a nice story, and it's crazy. It's just crazy from beginning to end. But it's really cool, and, like... One thing that I think a lot of these movies also have in common is that there's, like... That comic, that comic relief dude. Yes. There's one guy in each of these movies that is just like the bumbling dude who also makes good. Right. And in this case, there's a guy who is like lives in the town and is descended from a long line of demon hunters who basically ends up falling in love with the bird demon. Like they have their own little plot. He like saves her in her human form from 
some muggers, but then she rips one of their hearts out. And he's like, oh, you're a demon. And then they hit it off and they like end up collaborating to, you know, defeat the evil neighboring country and other things. It's just really like an interesting, funny little side plot that kind of like is so necessary to relieve some of this like angst and tension from the main movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Chinese films really do a good job of that in general. They they're always a little bit heavy handed and um, stock and tropey. But I think they understand like. That you do, you got to break it up, you know, in general with some funsies. I think they're pretty good about it. Unlike maybe, say, their Korean neighbors who are just relentless. So I don't know. I haven't um, watched a lot of Korean genre films, like the you know fantasy, historical fantasy kind of. I've watched a couple, and it's, it's literally all or nothing. It's literally like, oh, this is all jokes, or this is all doom and gloom. I think you may remember. You, you think you kind of tuned in for one that I started watching and it was just utterly ridiculous. Like there were dance numbers in the middle of it and it was just insanity. No, I definitely uh, did not see that one. Oh, uh, it was it, at first I was like, yeah, this is cool. And then I was like, nah, I'm not into it. Um, but how about some of these older ones too? I mean, we did mention hero and crouching tiger, hidden dragon, which I guess really kind of launched this new wave of a uh, beautiful Chinese medieval fantasy wuxia films. But there's one you and I just recently saw, which I guess kind of escaped our notice, which was House of Flying Daggers. Yeah, I remember that one came out, you know, around the same time as Crouching Tiger and Hero. And I just somehow missed it in the theater, missed it on DVD. And then, you know, it was like, you know, I heard this is an amazingly beautiful movie. Yeah, (laughs) and it is. And it really is. And it actually, to me, has a much simpler plot yeah. than either Crouching Tiger or Hero did. I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it's exquisite. And it's got a lot of name Chinese actors. And uh, Takeshi Kanashiro, who is half Chinese, half Japanese, um, or Taiwanese, depending on who you talk to. Andy Lau is also in it. I think Andy Lau is in a few of the films that um, we're going to talk about. I think he's in Detective D um, as Detective D. And then um, Ziyi Zhang, who is probably the most famous of these people, apart from maybe Jet Li. But, you know, she's the young, beautiful Asian chick in all these films. <laughs> so it, this movie is full of awesome shots and colors and moments. And it's just so evocative with the way they manipulate time with the camera and the battles and the situations. And I'm not going to go too much into the details of the plot, you know. But it definitely is a striking movie, and the, that finale just leaves you like... The finale is really where that movie got <laughs> jumped the shark for me. Yeah, I know. But you like, were like, oh my god. But the thing about House of Flying Daggers that I found so amazing, and it was, it comes back to the visuals and the use of color yeah. in each of the different locations. More than anything else, it was that for me. It was the yeah. color palette throughout the film and the way it changed and the way they used different colors and each location kind of had its own yeah. color palette to it that really made it made this movie like stand out to me. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, like the fight sequences were amazing, as always, in all these Wuxia films. You have like a, a blind girl at a brothel who turns out is part of this group of assassins, the House of Flying Daggers. And she and this man go to find the House of Flying Daggers from the brothel. Like, she fails in an assassination attempt, and then they go on the run together to go back to the House of Flying Daggers. And they're obviously, you know, being chased 
but then there's so many more layers to it than that. Yeah, and everyone's like a double crosser. And I was the, everything agent. is the deceit and the like who's undercover and who's not and what's happening and all this kind of stuff. So like you really have to pay attention. It's also a love story. As yeah, so many absolutely. of these things are. Well, this is even more than maybe the others. Like this one is everybody's in love with everybody else. Yeah, and, like, everybody wants, wants to kill for it. Basically, it's definitely like, you know, high stakes in this world. I will say that Ji Zhang was definitely giving me all my Zhang Hua fantasies. Um, <laughs> come to life. I was really kind of grateful for her. Jin Chinese. All sword the sword play. play. <laughs> yeah, it would maybe made me happy um, on that level. And so other movies that are really cool. I know I mentioned uh, Andy Lau, who was in Detective D. And I guess that leads us to Detective D and the mystery of the Phantom Flame. This movie is just so like, like we talked about the others being striking, but the opening of this movie with the, there's a statue being built and a coronation happening and like, and you know, the idea is the statue was like, you know, as tall as the Eiffel Tower kind of. It's huge. It's, it's a giant undertaking and people are inside of it building it. It's got its own kind of like clockwork setup inside of it is what it feels like. If you think about like, <laughs> The undertaking that the pyramids would be is what it feels like the undertaking of the statue is in the right. film. It's it's a lot like the Colossus of Bravos if you guys are watching Game of Thrones. It's like that size. It's massive. Yeah, so Detective D. And then uh, let's not, you know, jump to If you watch five minutes of the film, basically people start bursting into flames. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and that it is in the title. Basically, yeah. these government officials are are out and about and all of a sudden just burst into flame. And people can't figure out why it's happening. Right. So they bring, and this is another movie. It's a sequel. The first yeah. one t- turns out is on Netflix. This is just the first movie out of this genre that Orlando and I watched. Right. So we didn't know about the sequel. Like we didn't know about the first one, so we just watched this one. But yeah, Detective D is in prison for political reasons. <laughs> And that's about as far into detail as you get, and it is about as much as I was able to understand about that whole thing at all. Yeah, there was just a lot of, like, he kind of chose the wrong side back in the day, but he's such a skilled detective that they bring him out of prison, and he's kind of on a short leash um, as a result. And I think it's important to mention, um, this is really cool. He's on a short leash, but gets a sort of truth. So whatever. Like, I mean, I guess it, it balances out. It's important to mention that this is kind of during the rise of uh, Empress Wu Zetian, who uh, who is the empress in civilization. If you are actually so inclined to play Civ Five, she is the leader for China, and um, this woman is pretty extraordinary. Actually, if you look in history, you know she rose up the ranks. She was a concubine and became the empress of China, <laughs> like pretty amazing. Uh, and, and she's kind of touted for her savvy ruthlessness and beauty um and you know who doesn't like those things and so, all of that is played up in this movie too the yeah i mean the kind of like political intrigue aspect of it and it's interesting because like there's this whole weird dichotomy between like the supernatural and scientific reasoning that's happening in detective d and it's it's really interesting because like your first assumption and there's a lot of like superstition going on in the culture like in the and your first assumption especially with the way it's shot and you've got these kind of like crazy battle scenes and people riding around on horses across like the countryside is that it's going to be a supernatural explanation. Right. 
there are elements of that in the movie. Right. And it's kind of crazy because it just it's constantly catching you off guard that way. It's like, oh, yeah. is it supernatural or is it not supernatural? Is this right. person just being a really good ventriloquist or are they actually turning into these things? Right. Do people or have really is good it both? Skills? And I guess it comes back to a little bit of like a steampunk kind of feeling about it. It takes this idea, supernatural and science existing in the same world. Yeah. That I feel like you really almost never get in Western cinema. It's Which one or the other. Exactly the point I was going to make. I really feel that that's endemic to China. That kind of leads me back to the original thing, I think. It's just this kind of way of being that is so integral to the society and the culture of these films. And I guess the culture at large that is so different from our standards for storytelling. And, you know, the, it, the way the story moves from the supernatural to the mundane to the scientific, it feels like it all kinds of flows. What I know of, you know, Chinese medicine, it also, and, you know, Qigong and um, Shaolin Monk, it's all kind of this chi kind of energy, mystical thing. But all at the same time, you know, acupuncture, science, like very precise. So it's, it's this really lovely flavor that permeates these films, the best of the films, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Genre-wise, it's a Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame is a really great movie. It's fun yeah. and it's yeah. a crazy ride, and it also has like this nice balance of visual aesthetics, a complicated enough without being convoluted plot, and great acting too. Like, yeah, and- I mean, people were invested, and it it wasn't. I mean, it's it's melodramatic because that's the genre. but it wasn't so much so that you're just like, I don't believe you. And so what else, what other uh, films are in this genre that we love? Oh, you know what? There was one that we watched together that I think is supposed to get a sequel at some point called the four. Oh, Oh yes. The four, the four, maybe my favorite. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to lie. The four is basically like the X-Men meets ancient China. If X-Men was a crime procedural. I mean, how awesome would that be? That sounds awesome. It does and sound that, awesome. And it actually does totally live up to it. I think the four hits a lot of its marks really well. And at the same time is totally surprising and is really, really visually arresting. I, I remember just, we were like, you know, just kind of cruising through Netflix and then decide to start this. And it was, oh no, I watched it. And I was like freaking out. I was like, you have to watch this film. Oh yeah. I remember it was like, you were, you were telling me about how amazing it was, how we had to watch it. And the movie actually starts off. I want to say it's the four. It starts off with like a two minute dolly steady cam giant crowd scene. It's one of these scenes that like you're going through the entire city seamlessly. It's not cuts or whatever. You're, you're moving through this whole crowd. The thing about shots like that is that it, it really blows your mind on a technical perspective, if you, especially if you work in the industry. You're kind of automatically going to go like, oh, my God, how did they do that? And did they do yeah. this? And did they do that? But there's also this just visceral reaction to seeing something that large. And it really gives you a sense of the scale. And that is a thing that that kind of shot is used quite frequently in this genre. Mm-hmm. To give you a sense at the beginning of the movie or the beginning of the introduction of a of a city to yeah. give you that feeling of Absolutely. the city itself and how like people are acting within it and like what kind of like mood it has. Like, is this going to be more of like a bustling metropolis or is this mm-hmm. more of like a rural area or whatever that is? Like, it really gives you a sense of that right up front and the sense of scale that yeah, just absolutely. comes out of a shot like that is insane. It's intense. 
Yeah, it's super awesome. I, I freaking love this film. I recommend it to everybody. It's basically about this secret police who kind of are like, call in the, the special forces, and they kind of try to secretly figure out what's going on. And It's an auxiliary police force that gets called in when things are a little strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this movie is really cool. I like the way that they kind of break it down. I mean, at one point in the movie early on, there's effectively the telepath who's, you know, bound in a wheelchair because you have to limit your telepath and your telekinetic. She's also that. She is kind of scanning the room and she's like, there's two Qigong practitioners. One of them is very powerful. And, you know, it's just like kind of setting up this like the rules, which, you know, me, I'm like, oh, great. You're making rules and definitions. And that's good because otherwise you're just throwing fireballs around. Right. So this was I, I really like the way the four did more than other films. Uh, and this genre really kind of like gave you parameters for abilities. It really felt like everyone had a different skill set and that there were lots of surprises along the way. And one of the biggest surprises I really liked, the villain revealed ultimately in the four, gets revealed pretty early. And um, it's utterly ridiculous and hilarious and charming. And like, I kind of root for him. Yeah, you know? you're kind of, there's a, there's a weird way where you're like, well, can't y'all just join forces and it'll be awesome? Like, yeah. y'all could be you know, something together. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty amazing. The guy who plays the villain is a guy named uh, Wu Shibu. You know, just tongue-in-cheek and ridiculous and so very funny. You did mention the 4 was going to have a sequel. It did have a sequel that came out apparently in 2013, and then the 4-3 came out last year. We are so, just really behind the times then. Yeah, we have so much work to do. Yeah, um, yeah, we do. The movie is obviously set up for a sequel. Like, it, it, the, at the end, there's yeah. enough of a resolution where you don't feel cheated. Right. Like, there's some movies where you watch them and, and the cliffhanger is so cliffy that you feel like you just ran off of one. Right. But, but there's enough of a resolution where you're like, okay, but then it's enough of an opening where you're like, okay, well, there's obviously going to be a sequel to this movie. Yeah, I did um, some research on the four, too, and a lot of, almost all the characters return, which is really exciting, including yay. the antagonist. Awesome. So I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna get my ass in gear and tune in to see this because I freaking love the four. Oh, and also it got turned into like a TV series, like multiple times. What? Yeah, Crazy I think talk. so. I think it was like a book or a TV series and a manga or something, and it kept morphing, you know. And what's so cool about all these stories, like for us, you know, we have the Legend of King Arthur or, or you know the Ramayana or whatever, you know, and these are things we're familiar with, right? But over there, it's the same kind of concept. These are stories that are like, they're cultural myths that they are so embedded in the culture that they know on some level. And for us, I think as Westerners, in a large part, we don't have the same kind of knowledge. So it's an introduction for the first time. And I think that's part of the shorthand, too, that we miss. Of there course, you know, some of that. I, you know what? In the four, more than in any of the other movies, I was just confused as to relationships between the characters. Yeah. Um, mainly because... As we said, the four is um, about an auxiliary police force. So there's yeah. also the main police force. Right. And one and of the characters like bridges between those two. Right. And it was those relationships where I was like, who is who and why right. is he doing this? And like there are some of those kinds of like situations going on that I just did not get. Yeah. That I think like had I been more familiar with Chinese culture. Yeah. Would have been like, would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I was mentioning before at the top. I was just like, I don't know 
who's what the rules are here. And yeah, I, I experienced that a lot in the four and in Detective D because, you know, he vacillates between being the authority and then not. And also with the Empress being like in charge, but then obviously there's these undercurrents of, you know, sedition and even the House of Flying Daggers. And I guess that's just part of the Chinese culture. You know, it's ever shifting, you know. Well, House of Flying Daggers, at least like plot wise, that made sense. Yeah. As you go yeah. through the movie, like there are reveals right. that end up making like, oh, it makes all of this stuff for four makes more sense now. It's or so it, funny. it just changes the way you look at a bunch of different things that happen in the movie. Yeah, it definitely feels like a little Game of Thrones at the end of House of Flying Daggers. Like I'm thinking about the most the finale to Game of Thrones and I'm like, yes, I'm getting some parallel vibes here. <laughs> um, it does feel a little there's a little bit of that going on. But there's a lot of intrigue and stuff like that that I think muddies the waters in House of Flying Daggers. And I don't think yeah. it's so much intrigue in the four that muddies no. it so much as they just expect you to know certain things right. that as a Western you know, somebody who isn't really into Chinese culture on a regular, right. I don't know. Yeah, I, I also felt, I mean, we kind of glossed over this, but the fight scenes in almost all these films, these films are riddled, obviously, with amazing, some of the best fight scenes I've ever seen in my life. I, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Like, there's just fight after fight after fight in all these films, and are just like, I, this is so amazing. Like, it's, you know, obviously it's poetic and beautiful. Yeah. Um, but and I think... Just, Painted Skin, The Resurrection is the only one of these that isn't heavily combat-centric. It's much more of a love story. And there are amazing sequences that kind of remind you of uh-huh. these fights from other movies, but they're not. It's it's very mm. surreal and much more dance-based. Yeah, than, that's cool. And, like, even House of Flying Daggers has a lot of, like, dance at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But it's dance, like, kind of as a mask for combat. Right. And... And I found that interesting, too. Like, there's this yeah. whole, like, rhythm, sound. The sound design is something that we haven't talked about at all throughout all of these movies. Like, if you think about the scores and the soundtrack and the way that they affect you, it's right up there with some of the best of English movies, I think. I completely agree. Um, I was reminded of a lot of uh, Guy Gabriel Kay, who wrote some of my favorite books, books like Tigana and Song of Farrar Bon and Lines of Al-Rasan. I think he's got to get, he's going to get his due. We haven't. We haven't talked about this guy, but he wrote two books uh, set in various periods of a China, essentially China, um, an alternate China, but based on Tang and Song Dynasty China, like some of these movies. You talked about sound and some of the things that struck me when I read his books really evoke a lot of the things that are echoed in the sound design of these films. You know, there'll be moments where characters are having a very tense argument and then the author will write birdsong. And it completely just, that's, that's the only word for that paragraph. And you're like, oh, oh, crap. You know, like it grounds you in a way. And I think that same kind of thing is present in these films. It's such a, like a cultural thing to be present and aware of the natural world as it's happening around you. Yeah. And the stillness and the violence that happens at all times. And I think I that's, that. a, that's a thing that in all of these movies that they make use of that isn't something we see very often in Western cinema is use of silence. Yeah use of the pause yeah between characters it's not just like how oh they're looking or whatever it's like silence and what that says about what is happening between them that i find really interesting and i guess that's that's another place where the sound design really steps up to tell you about the emotions of the characters like more than they're telling you themselves 
Absolutely. And, you know, the designation with instruments as well, with drums and flute and uh, just various strings instruments, just definitely take the foreground in a lot of these films that delineate character, I think. There's yeah, there a lot are patterns of... of of instruments representing character. Absolutely. So, yeah, guys, that leads us to our Week in Geek. How was your Week in Geek? It was pretty good. I feel like this is the low between E3, the end of the Steam Summer Sale, and <laughs> the start of Comic-Con. Like, yeah. that, you just feel like there's a breath being drawn. <laughs> yeah. But... You know, in the meantime, a couple of interesting things have happened, one of which is that Arkham Knight came out. Right. And <laughs> We've heard this, this song before. <laughs> kind of. Apparently, the PS4 version of Arkham Knight is amazing. That it yep. is a great experience, and the plot is great, and it works wonderfully. The PC port was so bad, they pulled it from the Steam store. Yeah. Which is the first time I've ever heard of that happening. Which, you know, Steam introduced a new, they introduced a new policy. Steam will now issue refunds on games. Woohoo! They would never do that before. Like, or it would be a once in a blue moon situation that Steam would issue refunds. It was actually caused them some problems in Australia because yeah. that was like against the law. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> But Australia has, like, crazy rules for video games anyway, apparently. I keep reading headlines, Australia bans 200 games. And... Yeah, it's very strange. Like, the censorship yeah. in Australia is strong. But in any case, Steam recently changed their consumer policy to issue refunds for games that you've played for less than two hours. So right. if you buy a game and it's a buggy mess, you can get a refund for it right then. No questions asked. Dope. Yeah, I've done that. I, I got lucky. I re got refunded on a game, a sequel to a game I really liked. King Arthur, the role-playing war game, I really enjoyed, but its sequel was terrible. I only played like a few minutes of it, and I got my money back. So, But I do know that Steam's refund policy, other than my lucky experience, was rather draconian. It's That's good been that, my understanding. Know, but now yeah. that has changed, and you know, around the rumor mill, it is being said that that policy is why they pulled Arkham Knight from the store is because yeah. they were just going to have to refund all the money for the people who bought it anyway, because it was yeah. that buggy. And yeah. apparently according to some anonymous source that was talking to Kotaku, Warner brothers knew it was that buggy for months hmm. and they released it anyway. That's unfortunate. And this is where I get upset rather than release it and pull it from the store and having like, you know, and causing a big mess, basically. They right. could have just delayed the PC port and said, hey, look, we're having some problems with this. The console yeah. versions are fine. We're releasing the console versions. You're going to have to wait for a PC port that works. Yeah. And yes, people are going to be mad. Everybody always going to be mad about something. <laughs> but I'll be a hell of a lot less mad when I get something that works well on PC right. than if you give me something that's crap. And yeah. expect me to, like, grin and bear it. Especially yeah, for a totally AAA title. This is a $60 game. It's not yeah. cheap. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's got to be, like, the most amazing game ever for me to even want to begin to think about paying 60 bucks for it. Like, the merest thought for a $60 game when it's first released, it needs to be the collector's edition from God. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you know, I'm not paying 60, uh, not paying a lot for this muffler. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mentioned it on the last podcast, uh, the Pit-Boy edition of Fallout 4 and sold how it out. sold out. Well, yeah. it came back online for, a, I think it was like two and a half minutes. 
I managed to get in on that pre-order. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you got it. That's so cool. This reminds me of the fact that there's some summer blockbusters. And remind me, Pooja, did we not talk about Mad Max on this podcast? I don't think we did. <laughs> that, I, which I, is crazy. How did we not? How, how have we yeah. not talked I, about that movie? You know what? I'm just gonna, all I'm going to say is that for me, it's been the best movie I saw all year. Yeah, and it is absolutely the best it movie of the year. Its own, it deserves its own time. I just, it just occurred to me that this is July 4th weekend coming up and that obviously it's like a big blockbuster. And Jurassic World just came out. We didn't talk about that. Did you see that? Nope. I didn't see it either. I hear basi- <laughs> Well, I guess that, that would explain why we're not talking about it. No, but I do hear that like it's amazing eye pop and the dumbest plot you've ever laid eyes on. <laughs> Everybody I've talked to who's really loved it is been really has been really into the spectacle of it and just taken it for what it is presenting kind of the opinion is like if you were looking and that a it's never going to be as good as the original stop expecting it to be and b if you were looking for something like really great and like deep go see mad max yeah like you were you were never going to get this from this movie and i don't think like watching the trailer they're not setting you up for it they're right. never setting no, they're like not. they're never That's like this That's is fair. going to be cinema. They were right. like, "Oh look, there's some raptors and some other dinosaurs and Chris Pratt is a raptor whisperer." <laughs> this is true. You they you know, they don't they make no bones about they make no fossils about trying to just be a fun summer blockbuster. And isn't it like the most money making ever movie for like its release? I think I read that that it like blew even the Avengers out the water or some other thing it's just made all the money which is good you know but at the same time it kind of gives license to making more mindless big films um i would really like to see and this is the last thing i'll say about it mad max do well at awards time um i think it made obviously a lot of money at the same time i think it's deserving of a lot of cinematic you know i think the accolades need to pour to that movie because it definitely was the perfect balance between spectacle and what we consider, substance. I think, like, yeah, spectacle and substance. It was, yeah, for sure. It was an amazing film and just an experience that I was not expecting when I, I came into it no, at all. No. That and that's just good. really caught me off guard, but all in the best of ways. Yeah, I, I'm learning to go in with low expectations. And uh, as the plot unfolds, I'll also unfold my arms and be pleasantly <laughs> surprised. But there's also some unpleasant surprises that I found this morning, and this is interesting. So uh, South Carolina, obviously, with um, in light of the the shootings that happened there, unfortunately, and the controversy about the various Confederate flags are around the country. Some have gone down. Some refuse to come down. Um, some people are hailing Bree Newsom, who climbed the flagpole at the Capitol in South Carolina as a superhero. And personally, I think she's pretty amazing. It's nice to see her face and doing some great, radical, good, brave action to you know take it down that Confederate flag. But I did find out this morning that TV Land, which airs Dukes of Hazard, is no longer going to run the Dukes of Hazard because the General Lee, the car that the Dukes of Hazard, Luke and Bo Duke, drive and ride in, has a Confederate flag on the roof. And oh, see, this is and this is the same yeah. thing that happened, in my opinion. This is the same kind of thing. Apple actually took down a Civil War game from the App Store because it had the Confederate flag in it. See, that's and no. they've since they've since 
restored it. It's back there. And they've said, right. okay, yeah, we were, we went too far here because I mean, it was a game. It's a game about the civil war. It's yeah. going to have the flag in it. It's it not happens. glorifying it. Right. And just in the same way. I mean, I grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard. Me too. I had a Dukes of Hazard matchbox car. Me too. Little car. Everybody did. No, I didn't just have the car. I had the box that held all the cars. Yeah. So I had like, a hundred cars. That's awesome. And like a bunch of them were Dukes of Hazzard themed. But the point is that it wasn't ever really, it wasn't meant that way in the show. It was a sign of, you know, the times. Yeah. And it's one thing to say like, oh, you know, gloss over heritage. And it's another thing to say like, okay, this is just representative of the time it was made. Right. Right. And moreover, look, my deal is, when you make the Dukes of Hazard in 2015, don't put the Confederate flag on it, right? But guess what? This was done, okay? And this is in reruns and has been for 30, 20 years. So, you know, if for you to go back and erase what is it's a lot longer than 30 years now. <laughs> yeah. No, was it? No, no, it wasn't longer than 30 years. Like, Dukes of Hazard was, I, we were like kids, and I was, that would make me six, and that's about right. Um, I figured it came out, I guess I only ever saw it in reruns, so I assumed it yeah. came out in the 70s. No, it's it's early eighties. Oh. Early eighties. But, you know, like it's in it's in reruns. It's a thing that had its time and is you know, there's tons of offensive movies. We talked about this with Whoopi Goldberg, who was uh doing that little thing about um Mammy being in these cartoons. Yeah, right? the Tom and Jerry cartoons. It's just, look, it happened. Don't make cartoons like this anymore. Okay, but let's talk about what this was going on in society. If you want to turn Dukes of Hazard, which is not even like that that intense. But if you want to make a point about it and talk about it and what it means, discuss it. Leave it on the air. You know, I don't think there's a bunch of rallying racists like trying to boost the, the ratings for Dukes of Hazard every, you know, Wednesday night. Like, it's not. It's, it's not. <laughs> I don't think the no, clan has, yeah. like, Wednesday night Dukes of Hazard night. No, they don't. They don't have a Dukes of Hazard rally, okay? You know, people talk about Daisy Dukes. People talk about the General Lee car. It's an American icon. And guess what? The Confederate flag is part of American history. Does it need to be still flag like waving on the Capitol in 2015? No, I don't think it does. And if I think people, I would go no. as far as to say, like, and I think you would think the same. It's like, you know what shouldn't be up on the on the state Capitol of any town? The Confederate flag. Yeah. Because, but, no, you know what? And I've on... had to, I've unfriended a couple of people on Facebook over this issue do not, do not try to defend the Confederate flag as just part of history, just part of my Southern heritage to me. Yeah. Because you know what? That wasn't actually the flag of the Confederacy. I will say that it was resurrected change. by the Klan and the Dixiecrats right. in right. the 40s and 50s. Right. But uh, I will say symbols mean different things to different people. I know people who do like the Confederate flag and I don't necessarily think are racist. I think. You know, my mind is this. Like, if I see a Confederate flag on a stranger's car, I will make assumptions about them, right? And I think that's fair. And I think those assumptions can't be made about the government. You know, you don't want those, me as an average citizen, making assumptions about the flag being on my government. You, can, I think you can put the flag on anything you want. That's your business. You can, for me even, if you want to have a Nazi symbol or a swastika on your I shit, I mean, people are completely, people are all, like, all over the United States has swastikas tattooed on them. Right. They f- they fly that shit. We right. like it's there and it's their right. It's right. their right of free speech to have it. But right. you know what? It's not on our government buildings. Exactly. So and it's I really guess... like I mean it seems harsh and it seems crazy to like compare that. 
on to equate those things. Mm-hmm. But the systematic oppression of black people in this country has spanned centuries. Yep. The Confederate flag as a symbol of that oppression yeah. is real. That's how it yeah. is. That's how it's Perceived. seen the vast majority of like today's society. Yeah. And I feel like that is the perfect reason for it not to be in use by the government. Not to yeah. mention, even as part of like quote unquote Southern heritage. Right. It is a symbol of secession. Yeah. Which kind of goes against this whole like United States of America thing that we've got going. Yeah. So that is yet another reason to not fly the Confederate flag in government buildings. I it's think basically that's a, like a big F U to the United States. Pretty much. So, yeah, I mean, it's been definitely, like, an interesting week. I think the Dukes of Hazard, in relation to that, it's a casualty, and it's interesting to see. I'm so sad you know, about that. I loved that yeah, show. I have pictures on my Facebook of me wearing, like, the Confederate flag and the General Lee, and there are people who have um, the African uh, colors, colors of the African flag, the red, black, and green, instead of the red, white, and blue on the Confederate flag because they're Southern African-American people, and they've kind of co-opted that image. And that, for them, is a badge of pride. So what I feel is like, look, again, that's your business. And what it means to you is your, what it means to you. That is probably not going to fly on the state capitol, though. So, yeah, know, that's, like, I mean, that's really what yeah. it boils down to, yeah. is what is yeah. your government saying right. versus what are you personally saying? Right. And that's where I come down on that. <laughs> okay. And, dear listener, that's where we come down. That's where the curtain comes ringing down on yet another fantastic episode of Brown Coat Black Magic. And thanks for listening. If you guys want to reach out to us about your thoughts about Chinese film or the General Lee or video games and controversies, you can do so on our Facebook. Just search for Brown Coat Black Magic. Or hit us up on Twitter at BCBM Show. Or on our blog, browncoatsblackmagic.com. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next time.